We're going to talk about Mozart's Don Giovanni. The production you're going to see is there on the screen beside us, and it will give you a foretaste of what you're going to see. But we're going to talk about the opera that first, first performed in Prague on the 29th of October, 1787. It is, of course, the second of the three collaborations between Mozart and his librettist Lorenzo da Ponte. The full title of the work is The Rake Punished, or Don Giovanni. So we would expect, of course, from that title to see a wicked life brought to book. But not before we've enjoyed seeing and hearing that wicked life. The opera was given its Viennese premiere, its second performance, so to speak, on May the 7th, 1788. And Mozart wrote new arias and a duet for that second premiere. So there are, of course, there are, so there are no different performing uh, versions. Put simply, the opera tells the story of Don Giovanni's final days on earth before he goes to hell. It begins with his seducing Donna Anna and adding insult to injury by killing her father, the Commendatore. He then pursues, uh, he's then pursued by Anna and her fiancé, Donna Tavia, who are determined to have revenge upon him. Meanwhile, one of his former conquests, Donna Elvira, still longs to be with him. The sheer scale of his conquests over the years is catalogued by his faithful servant, Leporello. And then we see Giovanni in action as he tries to prize a country girl, Zerlina, away from her fiancé, Mazzetto. Finally, retribution. In a graveyard one night, the Don invites the stone statue of the Commendatore to dinner. The statue arrives at the feast, and it is, to put it mildly, a fiery exit for the Don. Well, we have a trio of guests this evening. Natalie Montahab, who covers the role of Zelina, and Chris Hopkins, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, are going to perform two arias from the opera. And we're in conversation with Sarah Lenton, who's a broadcaster and a writer. And Sarah's forgotten more about opera than we ever knew in the first place. So would you please welcome Sarah Lenton. Sarah, this is a trick question, but I can't resist it. Do you think that Don Giovanni is perhaps the greatest of the three uh, Mozart da Ponte operas? Oh, how can you say? How do you, how do you range perfection against perfection? Um, it's the most individual, and I think the original audience would have walked in thinking, oh, good, chasing girls, cheeking stone statues, being very naughty, and let's see what they do with the red gauze at the end. And then you get Don Giovanni, which is something so very... Odd, there was so much more um, extra thrown in. Can I put a quote in, Chris? Of course. Th th there's a moment when George Bernard Shaw, who's not known for his sense of the numinous, really, said he went to a performance at the Crystal Palace and he said the music sounded like the echoes from another world. When the trombones came in, they took an accent so inexpressibly awful that I felt forgotten superstitions reviving within me. The roots of my hair stirred and I recoiled as from the actual presence of hell. You wouldn't have thought Shaw would say yeah. something like that. Yeah. And the original audience thought the same. We've got all sorts of uh, accounts from people who went to the show. And I just stood, sat there with my brother and my hair stood on end. Well, this is not a drama Chicozo, is it? Yeah, that's one of the problems. It won't define itself. Mm. And that's perhaps one of the reasons we keep on seeing it. I mean, drama Chicozo implies a jolly 
humorful drama. But, you know, on the other hand, this is about a man who goes to hell. Mm. Well, he had to go to hell. I mean, in many ways, the script is like a panto. Uh, it's a script that's been around forever. I saw a, a mid-17th century version of this show done by the Commedia dell'arte, and I was astonished to hear bits of Da Ponte's script, except they're not. Obviously, they're written 150 years before. And, you know, especially the last bit, you know, Pentity, repent, not. Pentity, no. Pentity, no. All right, too late, mate. And uh, in you go to hell. And so Darponte's got this strange format, and he just, and uh, Mozart supremely, pushes more and more into it. And I think, Chris, it's something to do with the way the characters are arranged. Uh, you've got. Don, well, you start off with Donna Anna, Don Ottavio, and the commend, late commendatory, and they're all aristocratic characters, and they're straight from the opera seria, and they have that sort of music, and they're the sort of moral centre of the piece, really, and they're, they're very noble and um, very implacable. And then you've got the buffer characters, Zelina and Mazzetto, and, and they're more uncomplicated sort of people straight from the comic opera. And then in the middle... You get these strange characters, Don Giovanni, Donna Elvira, who becomes a rather strange character, don't you think? And Leporello. And, but it's Don Giovanni, Elvira. Uh, the Viennese would have called them mezzo caratere, middle characters. Which way do they go? And it's that, I think, that gives a sort of pivot to you know, it. I'd never thought of that about that. I mean, I think that about Donna Elvira, but if you see all three as a trio, what you realize is that, of course, what Mozart has done, as always, is taken the margins and put it in the centre. It's his pleasure, yeah, yeah. so often in his music, but what the rest of us would have thought was to one side, suddenly becoming the centre, isn't it? It's very interesting. I mean, notoriously, Don Giovanni only has three solos in the show, and they're all lightweight. He doesn't tell us what's going on in his head. We have to watch him in interaction with the other people and in the ensembles to get any sense of who this guy is. And over and over again, you see a show that a bit of the show which you think is hilarious. You know, let's beat up Mazzetto. How funny is that? Um, and you never know. It depends on the director how far that's going to go. The graveyard scene is that comic? Leporello and the orchestra don't think it's comic. Something awful's going on there. It's a very strange, queasy show. But it should be comic when it is comic. And I think yeah. that, that, that Jeremy Sams's translation makes us understand that it can be very funny. Oh, it's a very fast-paced show. And there's a lot of throwaways for Don Giovanni. Oh, God, this is all I need, you know, somebody else turns up. And, of course, he never, he never pulls a girl on the whole show. Um, <laughs> so you've got to act that. Um, and um, there's all that going on. And yet Tom Allen said of this part... You never enjoy playing Don Giovanni. And he was one of the funniest, most quicksilver Don Giovannis I ever saw. But he'd always come out saying, oh, no, there's something in that part. It grinds me up. What, the moral anxiety or just, just something... There's that... something unpleasant about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, well, this is, this is very personal because this is a very romantic opera, so it's very much on your, your gut, your nervous system as to how you, you respond to this show. But it would appear that Don gets darker as the show goes on. Because at the beginning, he can treat Zerlina with urbanity. No, not Zerlina, Elvira. Uh, he treats her with utter urbanity and he copes with her. By the end of the show, he's shouting her down. And he's shouting her down because she's saying, not, oh, will you take me back, but you are 
you are so out of control, you have got to stop. In other words, she's, she's bringing him up into a reality check, and he can't bear it, so he yells her down. And it's then that you hear the dreadful noise outside, hello, a stone guest has arrived for supper. Yeah. You, know, you know, the really puzzling character, to some extent, and this, I think, comes through in this production, is Leporello. I mean, of oh. course, at one level, he is indeed the Buffo character. Mm. He's, the, he's the servant who can't ever get away, who knows too much, who keeps the record. But on the other hand, why doesn't he break away? He knows he ought to. And there's some almost kind of emotional bond he has with the Don. Even asking the question shows how Don Giovanni's got much more in it than we think. Because you're right. I mean, when I saw it as a Commedia dell'arte piece, Leporello was a Harley Quinn character. And every time the Don left the stage after a really difficult situation, you say, Leporello, improvise, mate. Just improvise. Get me out of this. And that's how Leporello came across. But when you see the show, these sort of completely inappropriate questions occur to you. And you think, well, you should go. It's when he sings his big song about, you know, the list of all his conquests, there's a side, isn't there, where he's saying, he is amazing, isn't he? Isn't this disgraceful? Do you know how many he seduced in Spain? You know, I, 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 there is that side. But also for something polymorphously perverse, I mean, sexually attractive to just about... You feel that the dogs of Seville, you know, would have willingly cuddled up to Don Giovanni. Well, Chris, I, I don't think I can follow you down that one. <laughs> This kind of magnetic attraction for oh, just yes. about everybody. Yes, there's a glamour to him, which yeah. I presume is how he can prize away poor Zelina on her wedding day with her husband there, sounding so happy two minutes before. And, um, and the Don has to move in. And isn't it interesting, the Don has to say, oh, lots of pretty girls. Who's that one? That's the bride. Oh, I'll have her then. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one other puzzle too, uh, which is we, we're supposedly in Seville, aren't we? Yes. But are we really in Seville, or is this some... Some terrible antechamber to hell anyway. Uh, ah, I, I, all I know about uh, Don Giovanni is the moans I hear from people who have to put it together. And they'll say, do you know that blooming show, it's got 36 changes of scene. And most of them are to another bit of Seville. <laughs> Which bit of Seville? Well, around the corner somewhere. We're in another street now. So it's, it's Seville always on the move, isn't it? Um, I don't notice it's desperately... Latin uh, as such, but Seville, and um, there's at least 16 operas in the rep set in Seville or near it, including um, Fidelio, of all strange things. So it, it's opera land, yes. Good, okay, we'll stay in opera land. Sarah, <laughs> stay with us, because we're going to talk again. Thank you. Um, we're going to have some music now, ladies and gentlemen. Um, could you please welcome Natalie Montahab and Chris Hopkins, who are going to perform two arias from Don Giovanni. <laughs> Natalie, you're, you're covering the role of Zerlina. Tell us a bit about who you think Zerlina is. Um, Zerlina's a young girl. She's a peasant girl, and she's engaged to Mazzetto. And is she as innocent as she seems? That's a tricky question. Um, lots of people, when you say that you're going to prepare a role, when you say you're going to prepare Zerlina, you get lots of um, not very nice reactions of Zerlina's X, Y, and Z. However, I think if you look a little deeper... She, she certainly is innocent. She's genuinely seduced by Don Giovanni, and I think it shows in the end um, that she didn't want to go down that route. She, she is genuinely innocent, I think, but lots of people portray her in different ways. And, and what is it about Don Giovanni that she can't resist? Because, as Sarah said, I mean, you know, there she is, blissfully happily, thinking about to marry Mazzetta, all is well in the world, and almost like a bolt of lightning, enter Giovanni, and she's off. She is. <laughs> um, 
perhaps says something about Don Giovanni, as you discussed a moment ago. Perhaps he is completely irresistible. However, again, if you look a little deeper, Selina has no assets, she has no land. I mean, really, in the time that Don Giovanni was written, she'd be, she'd be in for quite a hard life. So maybe she's a little more intelligent than we give her credit for. Maybe she thinks if Don Giovanni really does marry me, then I'm in for a life of luxury and things might be a little easier. I think that's to be considered as well. So there's a kind of streak of the good time girl about her. Definitely. She's young and Selina's an undoubtedly attractive girl and she uses that to her advantage in most situations throughout the opera. <laughs> she yeah. certainly manipulates poor Mazzetto, doesn't she? Absolutely, yes. Um, I do think that she loves Mazzetto. We can hear this in the music. Both her arias are completely dedicated to him and they're dedicated uh, to manipulating him into what, what she wants him to do. Um, but um, I think undoubtedly she does, she does love him. The, the arias you're going to sing for us are utterly winning and beguiling. They, they are. They, they touch the heart. Uh, just how difficult are they to do? Well, of course, it's my job to make you all think that they're very easy. No one wants to know what really goes on inside. Um, so I will say that they're incredibly easy. Um, but no, every, every singer I think that you would speak to uh, finds different, different difficulties in any Mozart or any operatic repertoire. But with Selina, the difficulty in these two arias is that she's singing them both to Mazzetto. So often when you perform them in audition or in a situation like this, you have to have a very vivid imagination. Um, also, Celine is a tricky role for the soprano. It's often sung by mezzos, so it's a tricky one to place vocally, and it confuses a lot of people. So, um, yeah, you'll get a lot of mezzos that'll sing it, and a lot of quite light sopranos. So that in itself is um, is tricky. But all, I mean, as you said before, Mozart's the genius of opera, so it's never easy to sing. <laughs> the, the other thing that is so obvious is that Mozart is passionately in love with Zelina. <laughs> I just, you, just, you, you hear it every time she sings, particularly these two arias. He's, a, he's totally in love with her. Yeah, I mean, you have to be to write music like that, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, well, your, your Mazzetto is waiting for you, so to speak. What's the first aria you're going to sing for us? Um, it's Beat Me, Beat Me in the mm -hmm. Jeremy Sams translation. Um, as you will all enjoy this evening, the translation is quite vivid. Uh, and in Italian, it's Batti, Batti, O Bel Mazzetto. <laughs> Beat me, 
You. I, I can't, irresistible. <laughs> um, Chris, can I talk a little bit to you? Um, how would you characterise, I mean, this is a huge question, but if I asked you to try to characterise the musical world that Mozart creates for this opera, what would you say? Um, it's incredibly difficult to say it's one thing. It's so, it's so many different things, and on so many levels as well. Um, I guess the thing that strikes me most is the way it's constructed is so brilliant. Um, combining so many factors, and I mean, that part of that's De Ponte as well, um, with the text, but, um, but most of it's Mozart, I, I dare say. Um, and it's the way he combines all sorts of different types of music as well. There's dancers, um, the perfect example of the way he combines different types of music in a very obvious sense is when the three dancers collide in the Act One finale. Um, but, uh, but, but further than that, it's this sort of you get the music of tension and music of drama, but also beautiful set pieces like Bati Bati, and, um, and also brilliantly combines w with all the time an underlying sense of the drama and why that music is there to serve the drama. And there is a sense in the score of, 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 of relentless movement forwards, isn't there, too? And yeah. there are, as you rightly say, these moments of pause, moments of stasis, but somehow, in a sense, you're, the excitement of the piece music is you know you're rushing forward to something. There's always something around the corner, yeah. 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 And especially in the finales, actually, I think. And the sextet in Act Two as well. Is, is, and, and, and also, I mean, the little games that he can't resist playing at the end of the feast when the commendatory comes, or before, when he quotes himself from Figaro. Oh, it's brilliant. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you know what's going to happen, yes. and it suddenly he plays a little game on yes. you, I think. Yeah. Does he give the characters 
music that can be easily identified with them? Yes, on two levels, both as individual characters and on a slightly, uh, slightly wider lens, the, the, the very obvious difference between the aristocrats, as in Don, Giovanni, Don Giovanni, Don Anna, Ottavio and Elvira, uh, contrasted with the, the sort of rustic characters of Mazzetto and Zelina and Leporello, the servant. Um, and uh, it's maybe most obvious if I play you a couple of bits. Um, the, the, what strikes me as the most obvi obviously rustic music is the entrance of Zelina and Mazzetto in Act One when they're getting married. It's this and so on. It's this, it's this very simple tonic dominant all the time and there you find all these pedal notes as well so it's, it's got something about the bagpipes to it um, <laughs> uh, and that's 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 quite a recurrent feature um, I mean that's totally contrasted with with the, the sort of nobility of the others even Elvira she's she's pretty much angry all the time um, but even when she enters, this sort of and so it's, it's got a sense of, of stature to it. And when she's really angry, um, it, you, we find this baroque. Uh, I don't know if I can play it. We find this baroque movement. I mean, it's so obviously uh, of the intelligentsia, the sort of you know the the, the well-to-do aristocratic field. Even though she's going crazy. Um, uh, the really interesting one I find is, is actually Don Giovanni himself. You were saying earlier he, you know, he doesn't really have a set piece to himself, but he does sort of flit around. Uh, and when he's seducing Zelina, he has this ability to go into her world of, of music. So la, the famous La Ci Darem duet. And in the middle of that, we get this. Um, sorry, I can't let me... But this drone in the bass. So it's, 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 it's a fascinating sort of construction of his, of Mozart's, to, to really write this into their own music very obviously, but very cleverly as well. You've been working with the singers on this production. Yeah. Um, what are the difficulties in, in, that you have to help singers with in singing this music? Um, it depends who you're talking about. To a great <laughs> yeah. Right, but, but um, it, it, it's, it's not easy for anybody. But I mean, what 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 are the temptations that singers make and fall fall into sometimes? Do you have to ease so them that's away? That's a difficult from? question. I wouldn't want to. Uh, I mean, I think for me, the the thing about it is is always going back to the score and the temptation sometimes, especially with a piece with so much character like this, is that as you get you can get so carried away with what's going on on stage and it's so busy, this show especially is so busy um, that, that, that there's a danger that that takes over and you actually lose so much of the little bits of detail that, that, that are in the score um, and always I think, and it's the same with, with a lot of the great composers, it's the same with Verdi it's the same with Britain for example as well That always when you just, if you just take a minute just to go back to the score and say are we really doing what's in here to the best of what's in here has to offer, if that makes sense. Um, 
it inevitably makes it better. Um, so that's one of the dangers. But I mean, just physically, it's it's so demanding for for lots of different reasons. Zerlina's as Natalie was saying, Zerlina is a very difficult part to place, just in the in the way it lies in the voice. Anna is has this incredibly huge range. I don't know if he had a specific singer in mind, but she must have been something else. Um, and <coughs> incredible amount of stamina needed to get through the, the, her arias, and the same with Alvira as well. Um, yeah, we often think of Elvira as having the, the bit difficulty, but really it's Anna as a, a more difficult singer. Oh, it's a huge thing for Anna. It's absolutely huge thing. And for the guys as well, I mean, it's a tough thing for Leporello. He has, he, of the guys, he has the big, biggest set pieces. Um, and as you were saying earlier, the, the challenge for Giovanni isn't so much the, the, the length of, of a big aria. You know, it's not like, like the Count's aria in Figaro. It's, it, it's more to do with actually maintaining an energy and a, and a character to be chopping and changing all the time into different styles and, uh, and, but always maintaining this sort of sense of dominance on stage as well. We're going to listen to Zillina's second aria. Tell us about that. Um, in the Jeremy Sanders translation, it's called If My Poor Darling Is Still Feeling Poorly, I Have the Remedy Right Here at Hand. In Italian, <laughs> it's Vedrai Carino. <laughs>
Thank you both. Such a tender uh, postlude to that hour, isn't it? You yeah. Know? You can almost feel the healing going on. Yeah. yeah you know, Mazzetto, um... the bruises have gone by the time he's finished. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, um, this opera begins with a puzzle, so it seems to me. Um, was Donna Anna, was she raped by Don Giovanni, or did she consent? Now, there's something about Donna Anna that gets certain people all fed up with her. And you, I, I never forget Peter Hall saying, I'd like to think she was raped, but she probably wasn't. What's she done to you? Why? I think it's because she's grand. And I mean, we've just heard what a big sing it is for her. Of course, it's worse now because they're singing at least half a tone up, aren't they? I, I forgot what Baroque pitch was, but yeah. the original Donna Anna would have been down about a semitone. She'd have been a young singer and um, in a small theatre, so she could just top touch those top notes and come off. So, I mean, now it's a big dramatic soprano and it seems to get people cross. And she's often in statuesque black and she's got Don Ottavio always in, in the train behind her. So, so, again, that might annoy people. Don Ottavio say, well, I've heard them say anyway, oh, it's a difficult show. You've always got to be there listening to her saying, yes, darling. Oh, absolutely spot on, darling. And you're always either with your back to the audience or sideways onto the audience. So it's very difficult. It's very difficult not to make him a wimp. But I saw um, an amazing performance of this show at Glyndebourne uh, not so long ago where everybody was so completely ghastly that when Donna Anna and Donna Tavio came on, we thought, oh, sanity has returned. Tell us nice things, you know. And I think that is her character. She's an opera character. She's a noble Spaniard, so perhaps Seville is important here. Don Otavio is punctilious and devoted. All he cares about is love, actually. He pretends he wants to avenge, but it really it's look after her. And right at the end, of course, when it's all sorted, he says, we can get married now. No, no, another year has to elapse. Oh, you're kidding. I've been through the whole opera with you. And, and she quite rightly sort of indicates... Darling, there's always a year's mourning in Spain. And Don Octavio goes, sorry, I forgot. And yes, just let's sing happily together and finish the show. And all these sort of gestures I'm offering you can be annoying. And all the time you're thinking, what did Don Giovanni do to that woman? I hope he, you know, Ugh. And I don't think anything happened. I think you have to believe her when she tells Don Octavio what the scene was and how they were interrupted, because unless you do have these two at the moral centre, um, you're not going to believe anyone. Well, you might say that you don't believe anyone, but I, I, I suspect that Don Giovanni is a show where somebody knows what happens, and I think it's the two aristocratic characters with their opera sincerity. That, that's strange, because I have this, this constant problem. I'm not sure I ever believe what any of the characters in this opera tell me. Do you now? But Even the commendatory when he says he's come from heaven. No, I don't, I don't no. think I believe him either. <laughs> I mean, I think that the genius of the opera is that, that, we, that we keep being having our sense of where the truth is destabilised. Okay, so you, you feel that the, um, the show, which is very traditional and which everybody knew the story of as they sat there, has been changed so dramatically by Da Ponte that... It's gone into a, a queasy area where, where nothing, nothing is stable. I think it's that, but it's also because no one can tell the truth for whatever reasons, or they all have their reasons for not telling each other. And oh, now come on, what about Donna Elvira in the in the second act, where she says, "Oh God, he betrayed me," but you know, I can't help it. I still feel I love him. I think there's nothing but blazing sincerity in that aria. 
Yes, but on the other hand, this is a woman who has you know, got in a coach and rushed after him. With a gun, usually. With a gun, yeah. yes, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. she's got, you know, and a woman who's kind of, in a sense, determined to get him. So she's going to put the best case forward. Oh, all right. Well, I, I don't. I hear in that area generosity. And I hear when she comes into that banquet, that fatal banquet, uh, uh, his last chance. You see, the, the, my line goes along an even darker area, which is maybe the only honest character in this opera is the Don. He's certainly a very brave character. I, I won't deny his... Um, there, there's a very famous Shakespeare line, which is, lilies that fester stink worse than weeds. And it's as though you're watching a person who's got energy and imagination and drive who's going wrong before your eyes. And so there's an awful lot in the Don, which is truly good, because energy and imagination is good. And it's all being directed the wrong way, and you suddenly find him worse than anyone on the stage. And, and I'm not sure you go to hell just for knocking off girls, but, you know, it's, it's the idea by the end of the show is... I mean, some shows I've seen, it's almost he can't eat his banquet unless someone is starving in front of him. He, he doesn't give him a reddish for his food. And there's something demonic, I think that's the word perhaps, that's happening in this show. And it, you hear it in the overture, I mean, you hear it tonight, you, you get that D major stuff going at the beginning, and then these amazing ascending and descending, sort of chromatic, strange D minor uh, moments, she said, hopefully looking at Chris. Mm. And, um, and it's the, cro cro the chromatics and the D minor, that, that strange feeling that D minor has, did you think? Yes. Do you want to try it's it? It's such a clear opening. Yeah. That's the D major. And at the end of the show, that comes back in even more complicated ways. And when the D major comes in, it's three trombones, which to 18th century ears it are the, the instruments of hell, of the supernatural. Uh, the, um, the, these are the ones when, when the god speaks from under the stage. He's always got trombones going there, you know. And so they would have thought, oh my God, what is this? And the demonic is becoming so apparent then that although, the, as you say, the Don might be uh, in many ways admirable, something's switched. It's why the 19th century always stopped the show when he went to hell. They, they felt there was nothing more to say. And the wonderful 18th century says, so you see, you shouldn't do these things. I'd like you all to remember that. I can't also help feeling that sometimes, and this is often true in some productions, though not necessarily tonight, that in fact that we need to be reminded that the French Revolution is literally yeah. single figures away. And the Don, in a way, is a kind of harbinger of, of the rebel of this kind of this romantic construction who will be a kind of key figure in that revolt. Well, of course, he hasn't got a social conscience, um, but he's extremely disruptive, and he operates as an anarchic character who couldn't care what class he is, uh, what sort of opera he's in. I mean, he, he mucks the whole opera up. And, of course, is he a gent or not? And it's very interesting that the big romantics of the English romantic period in the... 30 years later, it takes 30 years for the opera to get across the channel usually, um, thought he was it. Uh, Shelley went to see every performance of Don Giovanni when he was playing in London, and uh, he goes over to Venice, tells Byron all about it. Strange that Byron's next poem was Don Juan. You know, it's, it's all part of that rebellious uh, streak. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and, and in a sense, sometimes you feel watching Don Giovanni, it might have been one of those stories at that famous meeting when the Shelleys and Byron told each other ghost stories with oh, Polidori. Yes. You know, this might have been the story they told each it, other. Well, it too. would certainly be the story that they were, they were really hooked into. Yeah. Yes, yes. In a sense, you've, you've partly alluded to this with a number of scene changes, but I also think this is perhaps the most difficult of all the Mozart Apontes for a producer. I mean, the 36 scene changes that can be done by bringing on another chair, of course. But uh, you've got that opening scene. I don't know how it's done with this one. I can't remember. Um, but Don Giovanni's on stage. Don Aranis, uh, he's, he's trying to get away from her because he's roused the house. And, and obviously, he doesn't want to be caught as a seducer. And she's hanging on so he can get punished. And he's somehow got to hide his face. And it's that sort of stage action and sing a duet, which is difficult. So you, there are sort of little problems embedded in the show as to how, how do you do that. But of course, the big set pieces. Uh, you've got to have that banqueting scene uh, at the end of uh, you know, the, the finale with the three de completely separate dances going on and then Zerlina nip nipping off and then finding that she didn't actually mean rape, actually, thank you very much. And so you've got all that thunder and lightning and all that stuff. But of course, ultimately, and the audience are waiting for this, as they have done ever since 1787, how are you going to do the statue? How is he going to go to hell? And uh, I honestly think Red Gauze is just the best answer because most other answers just leave you a bit cold. Uh, here, at least, um, we've got a manual trapdoor if we need it. Uh, at the Opera House, they've got a, a one on computer that takes 25 seconds to go down and Mozart's only given you 16 seconds. Real problem. Here, you can just say, Bill, yep, faster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we do it like that. But it's, it's always a problem and you've somehow got to get the horror that's in that orchestra not risable on stage. And it mustn't be theatrical. That's the, fa the fatal moment. In the sense, it mustn't look like theatre. It, must it mustn't just be camp. You know, yeah, no, no, yeah, quite, yeah. quite. Very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps you'd like to ask us some questions. We have a roving microphone. Uh, roving. Oh, I'm waiting for it. I'd just like to ask Sarah, as somebody who's a bit of an expert on this, to mm. talk about some recent productions of Don Giovanni, which have really sort of struck home to her, and how this one maybe fits in with those. Uh, oh, I find that rather difficult. I, I feel like, if you don't mind, I, I'll edge away from this production, because you're just about to see it, and it's the Colosseum, and I'm sitting in the Colosseum, and it's all about to break out, if you know what I mean. Um, over the years, of course, I've seen millions of Don Giovanni's. My favourite here nearly closed the Colosseum in 68, yes. Uh, it was absolutely dreadful, uh, followed by an absolutely brilliant one in which fires kept breaking out on stage, but the audience all thought, oh, it's Don Giovanni. And so they never worried that there was a fire on stage. And people like Richard Van Allen would go, oh, God, another fire. It's, it, it was all the electric shorting on stage. He'd just take his cloak off and put it on the fire, jump on it. And you'd almost say to Lepra, I've got to go now, would you just, oh, I will, yes, sir. And all this. And it became, to me, a haunted show. I know the Scottish opera is the one, but Don G's got a very funny side to it. And uh, not so long ago, Don Giovanni here had great shadows of chains falling on the psych. We couldn't find the chains. And there were strange noises happening. The same thing happens at the opera house where the most traumatic and psychic complete electric failure happened um, during a show and, and no one could understand how it had happened. So to me, it's got this funny demonic feeling to it. Um, 
you'll have gathered I quite like a standard Don Giovanni, but um, I must say the, the, the Glyndebourne one had, had its points. Uh, that was an update and very depraved indeed. Was that the Glamborn one that had the, the, Don Giovanni in the final feast, enjoying the feast while living inside the corpse of a dead horse? Yes, that was rather strange, yes. 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 I, I sat next to a lady in that production who stood up, I've never had this in the opera house, and shouted, this production is unkind to animals. Oh, good. And left. <laughs> oh, don't let her go to Julius Caesar. I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Do we have another Is there anything um, available in the way of uh, correspondence between De Ponte and Mozart which would um, shed a light on why this uh, opera bouffe turned out to be a, a, a terribly opera seria or the other way round? Um, unfortunately, De Ponte and Mozart were in the same town as they wrote this thing, um, so they didn't, they didn't email each other or anything like that. Um, what you do get are sometimes Mozart's letters, but I'm not convinced I've read anything that particularly shed much light on his, his thought processes in Don Giovanni. I did notice, though, about that time he's writing about another opera, and I think he's got Don Giovanni in his head. He says, now, I want two strong female leads. I want an opera seria girl and a mezzo caratere. Oh, and we could have a buffer girl, too. And I thought, hello, that's Donna Anna. Uh, Donna Elvira and Zelina. And so while he's writing it, you know, they are thinking categories. Uh, and Mozart's got to write in categories. You've got to know musically where you are with these people. Then the fun is seeing what you do with these very, um, very clear stereotypes in a way. And as always with Mozart, it was very noticeable when Natalie was talking about, I'm going to have to sing Zelina and Mazzetto isn't here, um, is that because Mozart so loves an ensemble, so many of the solos in the three da Ponte operas are almost duets. There's always someone on stage, isn't it? You have to be really autistic, like the Count in Figaro. Um, that's a bit mean, but you know what I mean. Um, to sing completely alone. Well, actually, the Countess sings alone, but she is alone, poor soul. She's desolate. But it's very rare, unless you are completely stripped down in, in a Mozart opera at this period, to be alone on stage, even if you're singing a solo. Hmm. Hi, Chris. Um, I'm just curious, what do you think the stakes of like modernizing this opera are as opposed to like setting it in a more classical aesthetic property as opposed to putting it into what appears to be something much more in the vein of a, vein of a modern zany opera? Like, mm. What does that mean for the show and the text? What do you think, Natalie? Do you like playing in modern costume? It always gives it a sense of reality. Um, and it's nice to think about how the character would be in the modern day, because it's easier as a singer or an actress than to make the character more part of you. Um, but as you have probably, as you're probably all aware, there's there's so many so many differences in opinions as to how it should be done. I mean, did you did you ask if it if it was dangerous? I mean, it's, it's like, like, it wow. certainly provokes a lot of reactions. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I think it's fantastic that you can see interpretations of Don Giovanni in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I think we should look at the positive rather <laughs> than the negative. But, but the test is always is, is whether work. it works as a whole. It doesn't matter whether it's in army greatcoats set at the Battle of the Somme, um, provided we can be made to believe it, isn't it? Hmm. It's, it's, it's whether, we, yeah. whether, whether we can actually think the world we've been to works. 
Yeah, whether it's got dramatic integrity and musical integrity, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yes. Do we have one more question? You've time for one more question? We're going to be wonderfully English and sit on our hands, I suspect. <laughs> we could turn our backs and play grandmother's footsteps. <laughs> anyway, perhaps not. Can I, ladies and gentlemen, say thank you to all of you for being here this evening, which is a splendid, thoughtful, quiet, attentive audience. Uh, our thanks to, to our three guests, Sarah Lenton, of course, Natalie Montham, and Chris Hopkins, too. Thank you all three very much.